Okay, let's get rolling with Tom Gimble, the founder and CEO at LaSalle Network. Hey, Tom, happy holidays. How are you? Holidays, ho, 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 John Williams. Do you go by LaSalle Network or the LaSalle Network? Some people are funny about Origi- that little Origi- Originally, it was the LaSalle Network, and then a few years back, we dropped the the, so we kind of both. You're not offended if I say the LaSalle Network? No, it's kind of like the Ohio State University. But you probably don't like the LaSalle Network, then? No, you know what? I'm not a snob, John. I like As long as somebody remembers my name, I'm happy. Yeah. So, um, how to hire... A high-performance team. This is something you actually wrote about in Cranes, right? Correct. What did you, what's, what's the thrust of this? Well, I think we go through, and at the end of the year, we're all reflective. And 2023 has been really a uh, uh, not-great year emotionally for a lot of people and a lot of companies. And it's been really an interesting dynamic because the stock market's up and unemployment's low, and yet at the same time, there's a sense of malaise in business and in, in companies and definitely in the employee ranks. And I think that if we get reflective and we look about what kind of team we're building, if we're, if we're in leadership or what kind of teams we want to be a part of, if we're an employee and everything in the middle, it's a great time to be reflective and say, how do, what, what is being part of a great team and what is building a great team all about? Well, you previously mentioned that one of the things you want somebody to have is a sense of humor, right? I do. I just think that's um, sort of like wanting your cake and eating it, too. Um, Yeah, it'd be great if somebody had a sense of humor, but um, (laughs) I, I don't need them to be humorous or even think I'm funny. I need them to get the job done. Why is that on your list? Well, I think it's one of these situations that creates synergy. And you can have opposing views on things and have similar senses of humor. And, and the aspect of, of building camaraderie and a team being cohesive, part of that is not just high execution, but also how you laugh off the failures. And when you're putting in long days, long nights, long weeks, whatever it is, is that you, you can unwind the same way and enjoy some of the same things. And I just think we've gotten to a point where the world has gotten so serious around us that having people, in my case, it's a, a level of self-deprecation. It's a level of, mm-hmm. of laughing at different, different types of humor. That it, it, To me, that makes work more fun. And I think if you like what you do, it's a heck of a lot easier to be good at it. Tell that to the bosses out there. I'm saying it. I am one. I know that, but sometimes I think this stuff sounds like, okay, here's how all of you employees ought to be. This is how I'm going to get a team of people around yeah. me. I want you to be. I'm not. No, this is not. This is not a criticism, Tom. I'm just saying that a lot of times I think those sorts of um, aphorisms or ideas are are sometimes lost on the people that are trying to impose them on the people beneath them. I think you're right. And I think this goes back, you know, what do we always talk about at March Madness time? Why people should, why companies should encourage people to watch the games, right? Because they're going to, they're going to sneak around and do it anyway. And if leadership and company ownership and C-level people would just say, watch the games, let people have fun and do that. I a hundred percent agree with you. And I think that part of leadership is you can't shake all the fun out of what we do and you've got to laugh. Now on the employee side, there's a lot of employees that want to want to have fun before you've accomplished anything. And I think it's finding that happy medium of celebrating wins along the way to the big win 
and at the same time realizing that if we have similar um, senses of humor, we're gonna we're gonna laugh along the way, and that's a that's a great thing. No, I think you're talking about culture here, and I think finding the fit up and down is 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 so important. But you also said in your Crane's piece that there are some non-negotiables. So what are those? We're talking to Tom Gimble, and he's the CEO at LaSalle Network. By the way, Tom, you were on just with us before the break. You still are, and you were talking about how a sense of humor is really an important thing. 847 said, Tom Gimble is spot on. Next texture says, humor is essential, exclamation point. The next one says, everybody wants hybrid. I don't know that that's hybrid humor and non-humor or hybrid at home and in the office. Um, if I'm hiring a good team, is that a new consideration? Where are you going to work? Yeah, it most definitely is. But that the, the biggest problem I see with companies and leadership in hiring is non-committal from the employer, is that people are afraid of turnover, they're afraid of causing disruption, and what you're giving employees is ambiguity and gray, and that's not what they want. They want clarity. They want to know what's expected of them, because at the end of the day, the end of the week, the end of the year, they want promotions, raises, and they don't want to have, have it held against them. 12 months later, but they didn't know what, what they were supposed to be doing. So who do you think is in the driver's seat? Uh, so you've got the candidate you really like. The candidate seems to be at the place he really or she really wants to be. They want to work from home one day a week or two days a week, and you don't. Um, who's going to give in that? Uh, supply and demand. It depends on the on the uh, amount of supply. So if it's a recent college graduate with uh, kind of an unlimited uh, inventory of that, they're going to lose. If it's an international tax accountant, they're going to win. So I think it's it really comes down to what the supply what the supply is. What's the non-negotiable part of your sort of team building scheme? Well, I think I think sense of humor is one of the three, and the other two are attitude and work ethic. Is that the the last thing you need when you're building a team is somebody who's whispering behind your back, who's rolling their eyes at every type of team building mechanism you have. Uh, the negative man. So you need people who are in line and aligned to what your your message and your vision is. So I think that uh, attitude is really, really important. In your experience, Tom, is it easy to tell about ethic or attitude? Well, I think there's a very big difference between ethics and, and, and attitude. I think you can be very ethical and have a bad attitude. Uh-huh. Um, and you can have a good attitude and be very unethical. So I do think that, that there's a difference there. But I do, on the, on the pure attitude standpoint, I think that an experienced leader with a, a fairly high EQ can tell relatively reasonable if, reasonably quickly if, if somebody doesn't have the right attitude. Yeah, but still, you say ethic then, too. I Maybe you call some of their... And do people ever follow up? Do they call the people that you say will vouch for me, you know, the recommendations? Does, yeah. does, does that happen? For sure. And I think that, you know, there's an expression that no one ever got sued for giving a good reference. And and that goes a long way. What surprises me more than anything is the amount of people that don't reach out to their references before giving them. And they don't ask, what would you say about me if they ask about my work ethic or, or my attitude? And they just take for granted that somebody's going to say great things about them. And that's just not always the case. I've been asked to write letters of recommendation for somebody's references. And 
Uh, that's really a funny thing because you're right. They've been friends or they're colleagues. They've reached out to me. So naturally I want to, you know, um, sort of reward that friendship or relationship. But sometimes I know that they were done or, you know, um, they weren't great when they left. And I don't know how candid to be to that next employer who I don't know a thing about, you know, maybe. I think the real question comes down, John, if you were hiring somebody, how would you want that reference to be from the person you talked to? Yeah, but that's not my problem. <laughs> yeah, right. You know what? I, I think we've solved society's problem in the last 13 seconds. Well. <laughs> that you and I have a similar sense of humor, John. We're working well together. Well, I would say that um, it probably doesn't do anybody any favors to recommend them for a job that you don't think they're best qualified for anyway. It's the same thing about pulling a string to get somebody into college. If, if somebody's not qualified to go to an elite school, uh, politics aside, but old school elite colleges or universities, and they get in and they can't hang with the student body, did you really do them a favor? And I think it's the same thing in work is that you've got you to gotta set people up for success. And I think to be honest, I mean, I've hired people where the reference has been, they were awesome while they were here. The last six months they were checked out yep. and yep. It, wasn't, it wasn't good. But I think if you get that person from the first four years, you're golden. Well, that's kind of the scenario I think a lot of us have found ourselves in. And so how do you write that? Maybe you're as candid as you just suggested, but maybe you think, oh, they'll figure it out in four years. For now, I'd say, you know, hire person X. Yeah, I, 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 I'm a big believer in, in honesty. Um, by the way, you also mentioned solicit different perspectives in your Crane's piece. Are you talking about sort of, uh, you know, like Lincoln's cabinet, getting a blend of perspectives, uh, maybe people that don't always agree with you or have maybe a fundamentally different view on things? Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's a different thing than the political spectrum where there's different ways to tackle it. When you're running a business and you want to go from A to Z as fast as you can, right, the number one rule in opening a business or the number one reason is to increase shareholder value, right? You, you, you start a company, it's worth zero, you want it to be worth something one day. And, and it makes sense to have people who see the world differently um, from the perspective of if your clients are different types of buyers. And I, I agree with that. Um, but when I say solicit different opinions, it's on, on more about certain people. So if you only have executives interview candidates, you're only getting an executive opinion. But if you have staff level and mid-level people, mm. you can get different perspective of how they come off. And I think that's really important. Does that happen? Is that kind of, does everybody knows that? No, I don't know if everybody, I think, I think most people know it if you ask them, but they say, I don't need a two-year person to interview a senior manager. And my answer is, it's not about interviewing them. It's really more about how the senior manager treats the two-year person during the process, right? A lot of times the answer that you get to isn't the reason you have a conversation or a meeting. It's to see how people respond, thought process, and uh, mutual respect. It's not always what the answer is. Mm. Any other red flags or advice for building a team for the new year if you're hiring or if you're the candidate? Um, any other wisdom from Tom Gimble? Yeah, I think two things. I'd say number one is if you're building the team, you want to meet people face-to-face. -face. Is that if you're going to have people who are even hybrid, they should come into the office for the interview process, yeah. and you should see how they treat your receptionist or the person who mans the front desk. It's an old test, but a good one. 
And I think if you're looking for a job, I think you need to be really honest and look yourself in the mirror and say, what could I have done better at my existing job? And how am I going to demonstrate that in the, in the interview and be honest? Tom Gimbel, happy holidays to you and your very large staff. Uh, have a good holiday, and let's continue to visit in the new year, Tom. No coal in your stocking, John. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> but right now, let's visit with Craig Bolanos on the Wintrust Business Lunch, the co-founder and CEO of Wealth Management Group. Let's start talking about this rally we're on, Craig. How do you score that? How long has the market been tipping up? Oh, my heavens, from the depth of a fiery hell in October with a 10-year treasury over five, yes. people worried the S&P was going to break back below 4,000. We've gone from correction to momentous rally in a very soft 32, 33 days. And, yeah, it's one of those few times you and I spoke two weeks on your program. I don't want to say people can fall asleep at the wheel, but if there's ever a time to play pickleball, it's over the next two weeks because we just have momentum as we march mark up into the Santa Claus rally. Oh, hi, Craig. So that is pretty amazing. I mean, like that's a six weeks that the market has been trending up. Uh, did you see that coming uh, in uh, October? Well, you know, I talked in a number of publications about there's a seasonality to the market, and usually the seasonality turns in November. But if you were to ask me, do I think the Dow Jones would have printed 37500 no. Do I think the S&P would have been trading just below 4800 No. I expected a rally, but not a rally of biblical yeah. proportions the way in which we've had. But Ooh. in the same vein, John, who would have thought the Fed would talk about cutting rates as much as they have? Yeah, I've heard three, then four, then five times. What's your read on that? Well, you know, I've heard three, four, five. I've even heard six. I got to count on more hands, you know, than I only got how five fingers on one hand. How many times do they meet in a given year? Are they going to have some, uh, you know, midweek games as well? There's enough meetings for them to do this, but here's what I will say clearly, the three pillars are in place. Those three pillars being rate cuts for 2024, a 10-year treasury, which influences the cost of borrowing under 4%, and inflation continuing to go lower. We'll get confirmation once again on Friday. We've got a good recipe to close the year and a decent recipe to start off. 2024. But I do want to make sure investors realize things right now are a little bit priced for perfection. And that means an air pocket could open up at any time. Shouldn't deter people. We just need to realize that's on the table. You think some profit taking is coming? I don't think there's going to be a lot of profit-taking between now and the end of the year. I do think there is going to be some rotation. I think there's going to be some rebalancing. I mean, when you look at the fact that the magnificent seven, those seven companies, we've talked about them time and time again on the Wintrust Business Hour, John, those things are up so big this year. I got to think people are going to start doing a little bit of rotation into areas of the market that haven't participated. Think energy, think certain areas areas in the communication services sector, and of course, don't look past healthcare. Hasn't rallied in 2023, but 2024 could be the year. And small caps will be the beneficiary of lower interest rates, right? 
small caps are definitively going to be the beneficiary of lower rates. And as you know, in the last 30 days, we've seen this resurgence in the S&P 600 small cap stocks, a resurgence in the S&P 400 mid cap stocks, still a long way to go. But as I look out into 2024, knowing that we've got a consumer that I think this is going to be the year, John, that people wake up with a financial hangover from all the bills in January, February, because of the higher interest rates on everything. I do think we're going to see in the second half of 2024 a consumer who finally buckles under the pressure of these increased rates, years of higher inflation, and that could lead to a slowdown. So I think small and mid caps can be in the portfolio, but they should still be the minority positions. Oh, Craig, you so silly. Are you saying that American consumers will stop putting things on their credit cards? I'm saying American consumers are going to start running out of room to put things on their credit cards, kind of like the U.S. government. We're already borrowing money every single month to pay the interest on the money we've already borrowed. I'm worried that in 2024, we see people taking out credit cards to pay the bills on some credit cards that are already maxed out. It's disappointing. I don't think it's going to affect the Christmas sales. Again, $966 billion. That's the over-under. I think we're going to take the over this year, but it's going to start showing up in 2024. You think that deficit, though, is the elephant in the room? Oh, I think the the biggest untold story of this year is the fact that we had two downgrades of U.S. debt, right? You know, one, a negative credit watch. I mean, and no one's paid any attention to it. No one's talked about it. We've all looked past the U.S. debt downgrades this year. I got to think that that's eventually the story that really matters because we have a mathematical problem in the United States the same way we try to solve for retirement problems for clients at Wealth Management Group. So, yeah, John, that's the elephant in the room. I'm sorry, what's the relationship between that and the way you try and manage money for your clients? Well, I want to make sure people are great stewards of their finances. And, you know, it's not enough to retire. You have to stay retired as a country. It's not enough for us just to say, hey, we've got this great economy. We're an economic powerhouse. We've got to stay a great economy, stay an economic powerhouse. And that means we, too, as a country, need to be a good steward of our money. And we can't borrow into oblivion. It eventually catches up with you. Yeah, but about my finances, I'll save as much money as I can. I'll retire. Hopefully, Social Security will be there. Probably will be. Maybe not my granddaughter's case, but Social Security, as I know it, will probably be there. Um, So what else do I do in being the good steward you're talking about? Well, I think at the end of the day, John, it comes down to, for all of us, it's a little bit like, you know, we're our own CFO. That's truthfully. We're each the chief financial officer of our household. And it begins with having a command of our cash flow. And having a command of our cash flow means having a budget. You know, a budget means telling our money where to go instead of wondering where it went. And when we operate within that budget and we can create a comfortable, non-flashy lifestyle determined by us, determined by our values, then we can start investing, saving with discipline, putting the money in the right types of accounts so that we can eventually create an income stream that we can't outlive. Because again, it's the peace and freedom from worry that all of us are looking for when it goes into retirement. So if we did a printout of our checking account and tracked all of our bills for a month, where do you think the fat is for a lot of us? What do you think the biggest opportunity is to save more? 
No, I don't want to tell people not to do it because it's the two areas that make America great. The slippage, the fad, as you refer to it, is M&E, Meals and Entertainment, and T&L, Travel and Leisure. And no one does Meals and Entertainment better than us Americans, John. You know it to be true. It's funny because people do want experiences, food or travel, more now than gifts and items. Maybe if we buy less, you know, I wonder if the number was the same, but the expenditures were different, that that would get us out of jail here. Maybe we're doubling down. Maybe we're buying too much stuff and playing too much, huh? There might be a little bit of that, but I think you're right. Culturally, things have changed. I even think you see that in real estate. People like to tie it into higher mortgage rates and this and that. No, I think the puck has moved. I think the attitude has shifted. You know, people no longer define what I call some of the pillars of financial success as home ownership anymore. People define themselves not through the country club membership and things. People define themselves by these experiences that they then share that live on social media on Facebook and Instagram and the right companies, the right marketers are waking up to that and making plenty of money with it. But in that same vein, that's the slope that gets a lot of us as consumers over our skis. Well, what do you think then? Answer this question in just a minute. Craig Bolanos, co-founder and CEO of Wealth Management Group. So then should a mortgage be part of every person's portfolio or at least every young person's portfolio? Is that, in fact, a place you would recommend putting money in? There's plenty of renters out there right now, some by choice, some not, but just talk to me about that in a minute. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. More business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Merger and acquisition news involving food processing and commodities trading giant Archer Daniels Midland. The Chicago-based company is buying Ravella Foods, a maker of dairy flavor ingredients. The acquisition is aimed at bolstering ADM's nutrition business. The deal is slated to close early next year. Since 2014, ADM has spent billions growing its nutrition business with a focus on flavors. Ravella's revenue is projected at $240 million this year. The Federal Aviation Administration is moving its regional headquarters. Cranes reports the FAA has signed a lease in Rosemont and will move its regional operations there from Des Plaines. The lease covers 108,000 square feet at 9600 West Bryn Mawr in Rosemont. The regional office will move to Rosemont in 2026. The report says the space is about 42% smaller than its current home in Des Plaines. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. The Business of Food with Steve Alexander. Yeah, thank you. And on the food calendar today, it's National Hard Candy Day, so we're going to talk about candy canes. Well, that's right. Tis the season for candy canes. More from our candy cane expert after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDrivesChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Imagine how many candy canes could fit in the bed of one of those big Silverados. Uh, Many thousands, I suppose, but that wouldn't come close to how many candy canes Chicago's very own Brock's makes every year. More than 7.5 million pounds just this past year. And a fun fact is that it's enough candy canes to circle the entire earth. That's Lauren Pezza from Brock's. I am the marketing director at Ferrara Candy Company on our seasonal and Brock's business. She says candy canes go way back. Legend has it that candy canes date back to Germany in the late 17th century. It is said that German choir masters used to hand out sticks of sugar 
to young children during church services, if they were quiet and if they were behaving. And all these centuries later, there are a bunch of different flavors, but the reigning number one is still the original red and white. Yeah, in fact, um, over 60% of our total candy cane business is the red and white peppermint candy cane. But something way different this year. It's a tie-in to the 20th anniversary of the movie Elf and some of Buddy the Elf's favorite foods. First is Buddy the Elf maple syrup the world's best cup of peppermint hot cocoa. The third flavor of our Brock's Elf candy canes, it's a cotton candy flavored candy cane. It correlates to Buddy the Elf's phrase, cotton-headed mini-muggins in the movie. And remember the part of the movie where Buddy has to cross through a field of swirly-twirly gumdrops? We have created the Brock's Elf swirly-twirly gumdrops. And believe it or not, those have never existed in real life until this very year. I believe it. Lauren Pezza, our candy cane expert from Brock's. From the food calendar, along with it being National Hard Candy Day, it's also National Oatmeal Muffin Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720. WGN. How important is a mortgage, is real estate in a person's portfolio, would you say, Craig? No, John, it still has a place. I believe in ideas that are TNT, tested in the trenches. And in today's world, everybody looks to the get-rich-quick schemes, you know, and they're primarily digital today. Non-fungible tokens, the disaster that was Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, or the meme stocks. But I tell everybody, the path to home ownership it might seem daunting, it might seem unobtainable, it starts out expensive, but over time, don't look past building equity mortgage interest deductions, and all the long-term advantages that come with wealth building through forced savings and disciplines of a mortgage. So it still has its place. I don't think the dream is lost. Mortgage interest deductions, that's a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm glad that the, that's, that's a government policy. You know, they could change that someday. I doubt they will. But that's, that's the government saying, we want you to own a home. It's the government saying, we want you to own a home. We want you to be vested in that home, vested in the community, have to work and produce. There's all these intangibles that are there. And I can make the argument for forever renting, but if you gave me a choice, ultimately retirement is all about cash flow. And if I had the ability to find a way to pay down the principal on my mortgage and retire without that piece of debt, what a great way to improve cash flow. And that's why we've seen generations of Americans own homes and be successful with that strategy. So then put in perspective to us what you think about the possibility that the Fed will lower mortgage rates many times this year, pardon me, interest rates. Yeah, I don't think anyone's getting back to a two and three eighth, two and five eighth, two and seven eighth mortgage. I think it'll also be a hard stretch to get back down to four on a traditional 30 year amortization. But the brief stint that we did above eight that turned into a seven that's going to come down into the mid to high sixes, that's all a very good spot to be. And I think people should be comfortable borrowing. I look back at my first condo, I paid over eight. I look at the second 
in property, we paid over six, and then downwards we went. But I do think these low rates, they were so artificially low, it is going to continue to create an inventory problem because there's far too many people who aren't going to want to trade a mortgage that starts with a two for one that's two and a half to three times higher. There weren't many arms incentives, though, in the last year or so. Do you think there's a number we need to get to and suddenly people will start moving out of the houses they're in? You know, it's tough to say. I think there's too many complexities because I don't think it's just about interest rates. I think it's about an awful lot of things, not just interest rates. But I say this, we're probably directionally correct on the cost to borrow once we get deeper into 2024. I don't know what directionally correct means. What did you just say? Well, lower rates are going to help start stimulate. I just don't have a magic number. But, John, I'll give you a magic number on something else. I'm enjoying these terribly low oil prices, but I do get worried with all these things in the Red Sea, the fact that we're pausing some of the shipping containers going back and forth. People should be looking. I mentioned some air pockets, some growth scares could happen. If you put oil back to $85 a barrel, there's going to be a problem. Right now, let's enjoy that it starts with a seven, but we shouldn't lose sight of that because it's all about inflation, which leads to the Fed, which leads to the lower rates and keeps the soft landing going. So higher gas prices are going to cost, make everything cost more, right? That's the bottom line. Again, you raise oil prices, you go ahead and create a reflation scare, not a deflation, which has been the good spot we've been in. And again, every extra dollar we got to pay at the pump is a dollar we can't spend on meals and entertainment and travel and leisure. So ultimately, to some degree, things do come back to the price of oil. And one last thing, there's not much we can do about that. That's not really that much a function of U.S. policy, right? You know, I do think there's internal things. Yeah, I'm going to let everybody in D.C. and on a state level kick the political football back and forth one way or another. But I do know this. At the end of the day, if China comes online, if China goes ahead and does a stimulus package, which I think that country needs, there's going to be an increased demand for oil. Put on top of that some potential supply shocks with all the conflicts that continue to pop up. And oil could be the story of 2024, which also means energy companies might just be a decent investment as people go into year-end rebalancing 2023. You said energy as a sector twice at the beginning and end of this conversation. Interesting. Craig Bolanos, co-founder and CEO of Wealth Management Group. Nice to talk to you today, Craig. Happy holidays. Our best to you as well, John. Thank you.